Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, how's it going? This is Matt here from Silver Fortune with a new guest on the channel, though some of you may be familiar with him. Paul Half Dollar Eberhart, writer and editor over at Silver Doctors, a blog that I'm sure many of you guys are familiar with. Paul, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me on your show, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, I-, I wanted to jump right into this this interview and, and get off with, start off with some questions regarding uh, the metals markets. I think that's definitely a common interest among you, I, and, and the vast majority of the viewers right now. So I kind of wanted your take on you know, kind of the state of the markets right now. Namely, are we looking for, for another potential breakdown in the silver and gold markets uh, in the coming weeks, coming months? And, you know, in terms of an upside move, what is it going to take for silver, or, or in this case, gold, to break through its, some of its key uh, resistance levels, namely, you know, around 1350 and around 1400? Um, good questions. I, I, I'm very uh, optimistic for the outlook um, on the metals. I think the state of the metals market right now is holding up rather well. Um, part of my reasoning behind that is basically um, for the better part of a year now, the dollar index, the DXY, has been held between about 95 and 97. And we've seen a breakdown in the metals last year for the better half of the year. However, they've stabilized since then, silver around 15, gold around 13. And, um, you know, I think the next move in the dollar is down. And accordingly, I don't think there's a lot more downside in the metals right now. There could be some, you know, there could be a test of 1250. I really think 1300 support is strong in gold. Could there be a test of 1450? Sure, I really think 15 is pretty strong support for silver though. uh, and as soon as the dollar turns, which I think it will, um, then that's just adding to the bullish scenario for a breakout instead of a breakdown in the metals. As far as 13, about, you know, the 1350 to 1375 range, um, I look at it kind of differently. I look at it as, you know, that is literally the, you know, because I, I personally feel that, you know, markets can be manipulated 24 seven. And I feel that most markets are. So I think that, you know, it's very simple when you print enough paper, gold and silver's futures contracts and you have an unlimited printing press, you know, you have time on your side because speculators and hedge funds and other investors don't have unlimited money. So, of course, they can manage price where and put it wherever they want it. I think the problem with 1350 to 1375 is that. That's the cartel's line in the sand, so to say, because once we break out above 1375 and really break above 14, if you look at a long term gold chart on a monthly basis, right? Um, So this is going back years. But if you look at a long term gold chart, there is basically no overhead resistance until getting to 15. And that's minor resistance. The big resistance isn't until 16. And, you know, in 2017, we saw what happened with the crypto once they start running. 
So I think that that is why 1350 to 1375, call it 1350 to 1400 is very important because once gold breaks that level, it's going to run, it's going to break hard, and it's not really going to stop too much until that 14, excuse me, until that 15 and 16. And once that happens, then you're talking about, you know, a ton of excitement coming into the sector. And, you know, it can turn on a dime and it can move quick once it starts moving, like we saw in 17 with the cryptos. So I think 1350 to 1400 is the line in the sand. And the only way it's going to be let go is when the cartel's having trouble defending it. Now, a lot of people are talking about, well, you know, what it's going to take is for the Fed to reverse course and cut rates or stop, you know, reducing their balance sheet. Or, Well, I mean, that's all fine and dandy and that's all priced in. But if you can just print unlimited paper and silver derivatives contracts, then you can, you know, you know, you, know, you can you can combat that somewhat. Um, additionally, the other factor is fundamentally speaking, Last year, we saw central banks buying up a ton of gold. We saw hedge funds buying gold. We saw billionaire and you know legendary investors buying gold. You know, if we get a little movement from institutions and a little movement from the retail investing public, especially the Western retail investor, on top of all of this other demand, then that's another factor that could add towards that breakout. And it's all just going to, you know, uh, be a perfect storm for next for the next major bull run. Yeah, in fact, you know, last uh, was it last week? I was talking to the uh, actually CEO of of AppMex. Maybe maybe you caught that uh, interview, and then he was talking about you know since the uh, 2016 election, he's seen quite a few large players in the physical gold market, and in his opinion, probably people that are more on the uh, uh, on the right side of the political spectrum actually have kind of you know appeared to have stepped out of the market probably because you know their guy or, or their party is is in office and so i wonder you know this is a little bit further beyond maybe the timeline we're talking but 2020 election you know there there is big money out there that uh would love to get their hands on some gold in fact you know i guess the way i see it uh, and you can comment on this is that you know the strong hands i think uh, that, that have been in the market for a long time. We'd love to see lower prices. We're probably going to buy more at lower prices when, when it comes to silver and gold. But but once you move north of that 1350 and eventually 1400, then you're going to have, I think, the double whammy of uh, the, the, the paper traders piling onto that uh, momentum trade. Of course, there may be some resistance from, from those that want to keep the price down. And then you're also going to have a whole host of, of uh, uh, physical buyers, both of the uh, on the smaller side of retail as well as I think the larger side of retail, because you know that just like back in in, in uh, you know the early you know 2010 or 2011, you had quite a bit of demand back then, despite the fact that silver and gold um, had already I think realized a good portion of their gains from you know their lows in in what 2008 or 2009. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are all good points. And when you think about that increase in demand back in 2008, um, you know, what have we seen since then? We've seen central banks around the world steadily increasing their gold reserves, um, whereas, you know, they talk about uh, uh, England selling off all of its gold. I can't remember when exactly that happened, but most recently Canada sold off all of its gold. In 2015, they officially hold zero gold reserves. My point there is that, um, yes, when we see that increased demand again, in 08 and 09, there was plenty of gold on the market to be sold into the market. But it seems to me that 
you know, there's not quite as much gold around because as you were referring to with those strong hands, you know, the only way to get it because everything has a price, right? The only way to get it out of strong yeah. hands is for price to go up substantially. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to, to add to that, you know, I think some of the viewers are, yeah, I, I don't want you guys to misinterpret what we're saying here, talking so much about gold versus silver, central banks, hedge funds, et cetera, are buying gold at a, I'd say much more rapid pace recently than, than people have been buying silver. But, but the thing about it is that, you know, despite this massive amount of demand from the, the East, which we'll be touching base on, on here in a second, China and Russia and India and whatnot, uh, in, in the gold market, uh, we don't necessarily need to consistently see that massive amount of demand when it comes to silver, the silver market because it's so much smaller. You know, uh, it's, it's hard to say exactly how much is out there. But but even if you just go on a maybe higher end estimate of something like, you know, 10 billion ounces of, of above ground investable silver, uh, only a, going back to that strong hands argument, only a certain amount of that is going to be, you know, on the market for sale right now. And so we're talking about a very small market compared to you know, gold market, which is, which is uh, valued in the trillions and trillions, you know, silver, we're talking, uh, certainly less than, than 200 billion, maybe even less than a hundred billion right now on the market. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to piggyback on that, um, exactly right. Silver is a smaller market, but, um, the other thing to consider is that silver, I, I'm, I'm a silver bug first and foremost. I, I like silver way more than gold. Um, I think they both serve two different purposes. If it ever came to fleeing for my life, then I would have the gold in my pocket. But that said, under normal circumstances, silver is indeed much a smaller market. Um, it breaks harder, faster, more extreme than gold. And the thing about that is, is silver is also more accessible by the people. Right. So, you know, uh, the average person may not be able to buy a one ounce gold coin, but the average person can buy a one ounce silver coin. So you have smaller market, a smaller physical market and more access by more people. So that's just going to put a turbocharger on it once these markets do turn. Additionally, I think that, you know, I think we've seen capitulation already. And I think we saw that a couple of years ago when some of the more, uh, you know, I'm not going to call anybody out, but some of the more famous names in the gold and silver advocacy space um, started moving into cryptos and just sort of like turned their backs on gold and silver. So to say, you know, we've seen the capitulation. Anybody who had silver um, was a weak hand, they've all sold out. And I think that the metals are, in fact, in stronger hands now. And because of that, once gold fever takes hold, Silver fever is going to take hold with the head in the minds of the people because it is the money of the people. And then that's just really going to send silver on a on a wild ride there. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we saw, it, you know, post uh, uh, Great Recession 2008 onwards, uh, you saw the increase in, in gold demand, but you saw a ton of silver demand in there. And, and that wasn't, you know, in many ways, I think silver had been forgotten about for 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 quite a while there, mm -hmm. um, but but it did have quite a tear. So so let me ask you this, you know, if we're talking about uh, gold going north of 1350, 1400, you know, as it moves up, you know, what what prices are you looking at for silver? Or maybe a better question would be, you know, what do you see happening in terms of the, the gold to silver ratio? Uh, okay. Um, well, short answer, ultimately I see parity with gold to silver. Um, so one to one, an ounce of silver costing an ounce of gold. But back up a second, what do I see going on with silver? And you gotta you gotta look at it a couple ways and I'll look at it a way because I'm a big believer that a reset is coming. Um, and you know, resets happen, it's a historical fact. So so 
we just can't even consider that. Not even thinking about the reset. What do I think is coming for silver? Well, silver spends long periods of time basically doing nothing, pretty much stable. And then it goes through these runs where after it reaches a mania and after that bubble pops, right, then it settles, but it settles at, settles at a level much higher. Right now, what I'm talking about is, you know, for the longest time, silver's been between 3 and $5, okay? Um we all remember what happened. I mean, it was under two dollars for the longest time, right? With uh, it was it was a dollar for the longest time until we took it out of our money. But um, uh, in 1979, when we had to run to fifty dollars, right? When the dust settled after that, silver kind of leveled off between you know three and five dollars for you know decades even. Um, you know, it's interesting. In in February of 1983, the silver price was fourteen dollars and ninety three cents, not far off from where we are right now. But my point with that is, you know, the last time silver ran was 2011. Where did silver settle? Silver settled between 15 and 20, right? So if silver settled, you know, from one to two and it settled between three and five, right? And now silver went from five and now it's settled somewhere around 15 and it's been at 15, you know, basically since 2006 with the exception of the bull run, Right. Well, the next bull run that we have, which is coming, and I think sooner than later, I think that silver is going to go on its run. But more importantly, wherever it settles now, when it tops out, where's it going to top? A hundred thousand? I don't know. But where it settles is, I would assume, three to four times higher than here as a baseline, which I think long term, as soon as this run starts and silver breaks, I think it's going to settle between that would put it at about uh I don't know, four times 15 right now, $60, right, um, is where it's going to settle the next time. So so I see that we're at a point where, you know, we've seen $15 in the 1980s, right? We've seen $15 pretty consistently since 2006, right? So we're at 13 years now, you know, and we're technically at multi-decades where we've seen $15 prices. When silver runs, it'll settle at a higher level. That's what I see coming. And all of that assumes that there's no reset. Okay, if there's a reset, then all bets are off. Yeah, absolutely. Now, switching gears here a bit, you know, this a couple weeks ago, if we can go back to March, the, the big news headline here in the precious metal space was Basel III. The new banking rules that are going to be instituted that put gold at a, I guess, a higher weighting in terms of a, a less risky asset on the, on the balance sheet of, of, of banks. And, and many gold bugs saw this as, as a, a huge boon for the markets that this was going to be, you know, you have to get in before what the end of March, uh, or else you might miss out on a big move up. And that, you know, if this, the week since then, which is a pretty small sample size, gold hasn't been doing all that great. Um, and, and in fact, you actually wrote recently about why Basel III might be a bit of a negative for the metals uh, and for gold. Can you expand on, on, on kind of why you think that's the case? Um, yeah, certainly. <clears throat> and uh, I've thought about it some more since then. And even before thinking about why it would be bad for gold in the short term, um, it basically comes down to this, right? What, what is the BIS doing, right? They're, they're bailing out central banks, essentially. They're bailing out governments. They're making loans to governments. That's what they do. And me as an individual, just like a government, right? If you can think of a government as an individual, if I need money, if I need a loan, right? And if I go out, 
I'm not going to pledge my gold to get a loan. I'm going to first see if I can just get the loan, right? I don't want to put up any secured collateral against that. So, you know, that incentivizes me to not even tell the truth about my gold holdings anyway, because I don't want you to know that I have 2,000 tons of gold because I don't want to have to put that up as collateral for getting bailed out. So first and foremost, can the official gold reserves, you know, are they even valid? I'm not so sure. I think gold holdings are underreported or overreported, depending on, you know, your country. I think the U.S. gold holdings are overreported and China's gold holdings are underreported. Now, and then under that assumption, we also have to assume that the biz, I don't think the biz is on the side of governments. I think they're on the side of their whole goal is to make money and their whole goal is to loan out money and bail out governments and collect interest on that. So they're not doing something for gold because they're doing something good for gold. They're doing something for gold because if there's going to be a reclassification of tier one assets, then that just means that more countries by having more gold reserves have access to more collateralized money. And all that means is that we can perpetuate this, you know, solution to a debt crisis with more debt just a little while longer. So, so that's why I don't really think it's going to be that good for gold in the short term, because it's just going to enable countries to keep on borrowing more and spending more without addressing the core fundamental problems that basically encompasses the entire globe, since no country on earth uses the gold or silver standard anymore. Yeah, so so you don't really buy into this, because I would, I would tend to agree that I don't, you don't buy into the argument that that this is going to, to lead to, you know, private banks uh, adding tons and tons of gold to their balance sheet in order to to be better capitalized. Um, yes, it will. And in the long run, it will. But I don't think this is something that is going to play out soon. And even so, like I said, if banks are adding to the reserves, that might not all be reported to the BIS. Um, because, you know, if you think, like, think about what happened with Venezuela's gold just recently, right? Um, why do they even have gold that they can sell to begin with? Because they've had gold that they haven't taken out loans against, right? So, so yes, banks will be adding to their gold reserves, but nobody's going to put that gold reserve up as a collateral unless they absolutely have to. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, so, so, so I kind of look at it a little bit differently. And then, furthermore, since I think that a reset is coming, right? Well, whatever's happened now doesn't mean that that's what it's going to be like moving forward, because that's what happens during resets. The whole game changes again. So I see Basel Three as a way of just kicking the can just a little while longer. That is a step towards the reset, right? And that reset. You know, it's going to be on a weekend and it's going to be Nixon closing the gold window style 1971, where, you know, it's, it's going to be a completely new paradigm at that point. Basel three, in my opinion, does nothing more but continue the current paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, as you said, in a reset, all these things can change overnight. And, and last time I checked, Basel three is, is a voluntary program as well. And, and so it's not. Uh, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary or it wouldn't be illegal or something for, for a bank or an entire country to just go their own way in terms of, of how they want to, uh, 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 what rules they want to follow. Exactly. Exactly. Now, you know, if you have gold and if you have money and if you have an agreement with a country, what do you even need the biz for? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now we've been talking a lot about gold, obviously, and, and China and Russia. 
and, and and this is not news i think to a lot of of uh, people listening to this that china and russia and india have been buying a lot of gold uh, as of late uh, china they've been steadily accumulating if you look at their numbers from the shanghai gold exchange the amount that they've been i guess uh, buying or importing the amount of domestic production that for the most part isn't really leaving their borders uh, you know the official numbers from the people's bank of china puts it at at a pretty moderate or, or modest uh, accumulation uh, that that took several years of a break and then recently they've been they've been slowly adding to their reserves but many people would put that number uh, i think they the pboc uh, what around maybe like 2000 tons i forget the exact number but but many people would put that number north of of 20,000 or 30,000 tons mm -hmm. in which china has russia has been accumulating at a pretty brisk pace and and those are their official numbers that they're they're reporting there uh, what's the significance of this? Um, people that say that this is leading to a, a gold backed yuan or mm -hmm. some, you know, is that is that getting too carried away, or, or is there what's what what do you think is kind of the the reason for all of this? Uh, well, I mean, in my opinion, it's getting ready for the reset. That's that's the reason behind it because. You know, gold is money, right? And money is power. And we know that. And we know that whoever has money can make the rules, right? Um, that's the bottom line of what it comes down to. So if China and Russia and India are accumulating gold and adding to the reserves, which they are, right, then ultimately there's a power shift that's taking place. Now, what is this power shift and why would it be taking place? Well, you know, the United States is an empire and we're all over our, the world and we're sticking our nose in everybody's business. And quite frankly, the world is, is, is sick of it. Right. So by adding to those reserves and getting that power by having a tool that can be used, basically, you know, it might not be China. It might not be Russia. It might not be India. It could be a combination of all three, this multipolar world that everybody talks about. But I can see a time where you know, he who has the gold makes the rules and China and Russia and to a lesser extent, India working together can force the hand of the United when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply states to back off with this whole imperialist attitude with all of this economic sanctions on other countries with all of this you know uh, what does the united states export we export war right we we blow things up we destroy things and we kill people that's what we do <laughs> don't forget <right>? the services <laughs> yeah. yeah so so you know in the end the world is kind of sick of that and by accumulating this gold, you know, people like to say it's, you know, having your chips at the poker table. And I don't really like to think of it that way. It's probably because I'm terrible at poker. But um, but but that is true. Right. I mean, you know, why why, ha why has the Clinton Foundation fizzled off? Because it ran out of money. Right. Money is power. If you have money, you can force things. And in this case. Right. They're forcing the United States to back down from the endless wars. Furthermore, once this reset happens, which I think is going to happen, well, 
is we're talking about a new paradigm and we're talking about an end of the dollar as we know it. So something has to replace that. If it's gold back to on, I don't know. If it's a Russian ruble, I don't know. I mean, I think ultimately the world will go back to gold and silver because that's what happens throughout history all of time, right? But um, exactly how that looks like, I just know that something's going to happen that forces the reset, which afterwards and the dust settles the new power players in the world are going to be in the east and it's not going to be the united states i kind of think about it probably how the brits felt you know in 1900 1910 1920 you know where they're talking about you know nothing's ever going to happen to the pound sterling we rule the world this and that well america's right there right now yeah so you know when i look at china from from my background of, of more of a I guess Austrian economics uh, point of view and and more of a capitalistic point of view, I see a country that yes is is accumulating a, a huge hoard of of gold. Again, we're talking north of twenty thousand, maybe thirty thousand tons of gold. That is that's huge. That that is I think going to help them in some sort of a reset. It's going to help them geopolitically, economically, as, as they, they um, try to, to cement themselves as a, uh, uh, in opposition to the United States and, and the West. But on the other hand, I also see a country that is largely communist. They have some you know, capitalistic leanings, but largely you know, communist when push comes to shove. I also see a country that, yes, has experienced a ton of growth over the last 10 years, over the last 25 years, but has done so at the expense of a huge accumulation of debt. Something like 70% of the debt growth worldwide in the last 10 years has taken place in China. And I mean, the, the, the importance of that debt growth to their own economic growth, I mean, I don't think that can be overstated. In fact, the importance of that debt growth to the global economic growth or quote unquote recovery since the financial crisis can't be overstated. So. How, how do these two uh, kind of conflicting pictures about China, how do you see this playing out? Do, do they just get rid of the yuan? Do they, do they you know, inflate it away and they have the physical holdings, not to mention their, their various foreign investments? Or, or how do you see this playing out? The second part, they inflate it away. I'm not concerned about the debt bubbles um, because it's all leading up towards the reset. In the case of China, you know, People like to talk about 40 chess or whatever. I don't look at it quite that way. I just look at it simply that China is playing catch up. That's all, right? Because we all know the United States can't pay our debt, right? We can't, the United States can't pay its debt. So, because there's only way you can, three ways you can pay off debt, right? You can pay for it. The only way you can pay for it is by raising taxes and cutting spending. And that's not the politically um, proper choice that politicians are going to make. You can default on it. As soon as the United States defaults on its debt, well, what's that mean? That means there goes the world reserve currency status in an instant, right? So the United States isn't going to default on it, which means that we're going to inflate it away, which means a hyperinflation is coming. And, you know, look at the Fed's balance sheet that's blown up. Look at the national debt that's blown up. Look at, you know, the deficit spending that's blown up. Look at the unfunded liabilities. That's that's somewhere estimated. If you look at Lawrence Kotlikoff's numbers out of Boston University, he says that the fiscal gap is around 200 trillion that the United States owes, not 22 trillion. So the debt is going to be inflated away. It always is. That's how fiat currencies die. So China, by going on this massive credit expansion, you know, so what? They're just they're just getting ready for this reset. 
because it's going to be inflated away just like the dollar is. Now, the difference is, right, is that while we take our debt and we make bombs and then blow things up with it, China's taking their debt and they're building things. They're buying copper. They're buying gold. They're getting actual stuff with their debt, whereas we're just spending the money and it's going towards war and corruption. So I look at the China debt bubble a little bit differently because we know that the end game scenario is the hyperinflation, and it always is. Yeah, and you even see it uh, across the, the globe, whether it's it's China making investments in the EU or in Syria or in Africa, you know, buying up uh, more than just uh, physical commodities like like gold mm-hmm. and copper, but entire mm-hmm. port facilities, entire. Uh, you know, swaths of, of, of land or, or mining rights or, or oil uh, rights and whatnot. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I, would, I tend to agree, I guess, that, that, I mean, those are the types of, and let's not forget about their, their uh, what is it called, their, their initiative for, for trade between, uh, mm-hmm. you know, much of Asia and, and, and China. Right, the, the Belt and Road uh, Initiative. Exactly, Road, yeah. you know, exactly, because... You know, the United States is based on empire and aggression, and China is based on, you know, that's our foreign policy, right? Our foreign policy is empire and aggression. Let's not get it twisted. And China's foreign policy to date is, you know, business. You know, yes, they're communists. I get that. Um, But the bottom line is that they're looking at investments. They're looking at real things. They're looking at building things, making things better. They're not looking at killing people and blowing up things. So that's part of this shift and part of why I don't think the debt matters and part of why I think when the dust settles that the new power structure will be in the East. Yeah, And I sort of kind of just meshed the last several topics together, but it's an important topic because so many people that I talk to think, you know, oh, this is never going to happen to the dollar, you know? Um, people don't even realize that our money is supposed to be gold and silver. You know, if they don't even know that our money is supposed to be gold and silver, how could they even imagine what's going on with money and that the dollar might one day not be what it is today? Yeah, well, I mean, you do bring up a really interesting contrast there between the United States and, and China. I mean, historically, in, in a lot of, of African or Middle Eastern, Southeast Asian countries, South American, Central American countries, we've used tools like regime change or war or uh, threats, uh, economic sanctions, et cetera, to kind of get our way. Like, let's get our uh, U.S. corporations in a Middle Eastern country or an African country to, to uh, extract the oil, extract their natural resources, to, to build economic ties with this country. Or we're, we're going to install a, um, a, a leader that is much more favorable to the United States. Um, whereas China, I mean, I think China with, with the, uh, I guess, the, economic influence that they have these days, the amount of money that they have to invest in these countries. I mean, I, I, I don't want this to be misinterpreted as me saying that I'm a fan of Xi Jinping or the Communist Party or anything like that. I'm not. And that's kind of the one big downside with China right now. But they, uh, they're pretty savvy about it. Like you said, they're, they're, they're making these ties through business. They're, they're making these ties in a way that is um, mutually beneficial to, to, to both countries that they're dealing with. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. And and it's based on the idea of, you know, wealth and prosperity, right? Um, as opposed to do what we say or else. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's, it's how can we work together? Yeah. And, and, and you know, that that's a, 
arguably, I think, a much better long-term strategy. Yeah, and <laughs> granted, I mean, the U.S. has been able to pull it off for, for many, many decades, but but they've uh, made, made a lot of enemies along the way. Even, you know, I think we, we shouldn't make any mistake when we say that, you know, uh, Europe as a whole is our friend or Canada or, or Mexico or, or whatever, you know, for, for economic reasons. Yeah, maybe at some level, some of the higher political ties are. But but a lot of these countries, I think, are, are just um, increasingly becoming, I guess, dis disillusioned with the United States. Uh, you know, there, there's you know, you see the sanctions we've placed on Iran. That's a great example of of you see countries like China, India and, and European countries wanting to uh, trade with them or, or our relations with Turkey and the fact that we're trying to bully them into, you know, not buying some some uh, piece of, of, of hardware from uh, from from Russia. I mean, we're not making friends and we haven't been making friends for a very long time. Right. Exactly. And so the question, you know, so the question becomes is when it goes down, you know, I don't think that, you know, if we could use the analogy that the United States is a bully, right, the bully is not just going to walk away from the playground, right? He's going to he's going to go down swinging and he's going to go down kicking and screaming and it's going to be a pretty ugly sight. Right. So. Um, you know, that's that's what I see this shift to east to west. I think the credit bubble is catching up to the United States and, you know, they're going to have real things to show for it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's always kind of been one of my big concerns is that, you know, when uh, whatever you want to call it, the, the, the reset, the fourth turning or whatever you want to call it, uh, they oftentimes coincide with not just just economic events, but but also geopolitical or or uh large scale warfare and, and that's kind of one of my big concerns is that we uh yeah. you know enter into to a war to try and defend what's left of the u.s empire now i had another question for you here uh, talking about black swans that that could potentially bring on the next uh economic downturn the next reset i wanted to ask you about a unique potential black swan that you're watching that that not many individuals are so you know moving beyond the uh you know another meltdown that that's similar to the financial crisis or uh, deutsche bank that's one that a lot of people focus on or, or some sort of geopolitical event like like uh, uh north korea uh the u.s going to war with north korea or something like that what's a what's a potential black swan that not many people are watching but but you think has a lot of potential to cause a lot of mayhem um well i think this is more longer term, but I don't think Trump is going to win in 2020. And um, one of the black swans is related to that. And this is just surfacing. We're getting more news from about it today. Um, but we've been kind of hearing little bits and pieces of it here and there. And that's just Julian Assange getting arrested. I think that is a huge deal because, you know, if you go back to 2015 and 2016, candidate Trump was, you know, very well spoken about Julian Assange, right? And WikiLeaks was a huge part of candidate Trump's success. But if Julian Assange is extradited, and especially to the United States, it'll probably be the UK. But, but I, I mean, I don't know. I'm not in the room, so I don't know. But, you know, I think that that is a huge event because it just kind of gets everybody to take a step back and say, wait a second, what's going on here? Um, not so much market wise, but, you know, when you're talking about like the fourth turning and social mood and this and that, this is one of those things that, you know, it's like one of those moments, you know, it's like, wait a second, that doesn't seem right. Another black swan I'm looking at a lot with, with increasing interest is Venezuela. Um, I've been staying on top of that for, you know, a couple years now. 
And most recently, you know, we hear that Russia is opening up a helicopter school to train Venezuelan military, right? What that means is that, you know, the Russian military is going to be flying around Russian combat helicopters circling over all around Venezuela. What I'm seeing the potential for is a Black Hawk Down scenario, right? If we think back to something like that, you know, granted, we're talking about an American helicopter and we're talking about American lives, but, you know, we're talking about bodies burned and dragged through the streets. And we're talking about something that happened before the proliferation of the Internet. Is the world ready in 2019, whether it's a Russian helicopter, an American helicopter or something, is the world ready for just one spark coming out of Venezuela? That might be too much. I don't think so. You know, I don't think so. And I think that that could be a devastating black swan if something like that happens. Um, so 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 that's something that I'm watching closely. Uh, and I know that the coverage is very heavily slanted on it and very heavily skewed on it. Just do a Google search on Chinese soldiers in Venezuela and nothing comes up except what people would consider fringe and conspiracy websites um, uh, as being, you know, not discussed about at all, even in the alternative media. And when it is, unfortunately, it's all where we're just helping them out because that evil dictator and that's not the whole story of it. So, yeah, this is something that could, you know, if an event happens down there, you know, th this is something if a helicopter gets shot down or something like that, this is something that could, you know, wreak havoc in the markets. Yeah, I think this is beyond, you know, I think the, the comparison that a lot of people would make when it comes to Venezuela would be a country like I don't know Libya or, or Iraq or something, but exactly, exactly. But but, mm -hmm. but but the fact that that Russia and China are now making some serious military investments within the country, I think that kind of changes the dynamic here. It does, it does. But that's the whole that gets back to the well. The U.S. is a bully, so are we just going to turn our head down? tuck our tail under between our legs and walk off the playground or are we going to go out fighting and i think we're going to go out fighting if push comes to shove we'll see you know but that's why it would be a black swan um and so so that's that's one of the things that you know that i'm keeping my eye on here so do you think you know with with john bolton um uh, potentially having the ear of the president and and with some of the rhetoric that's come out of, of Washington regarding Venezuela in the past couple of months, you know, with and with Russia and China within the country, do you see this as a maybe drawn out uh, civil war or some sort of a proxy war? Um, or, you know, what would it take for the United States to actually uh, start carrying out airstrikes or, or even, you know, put boots on the ground in the country? Well, I'm sure there's boots on the ground. It's just not talked about. Um, right. I don't know. You know, it, it's one of those wait and see things because there's another dynamic that I think people are not thinking about, which I'm thinking about because it goes in line with a couple of theories that I have. I have a theory on peak Trump and I also have a theory. Well, my working theory is that President Trump's not going to win the 2020 election and that it's by design. Understanding that theory, you have to get all of the voting blocks to turn. And if there is an escalation in Venezuela beyond what it is now, and if you look at all the direct attacks against Mexico with these whole migrant caravan things, right, um, you are losing the entire Latin American 
you know, you were losing the Latino voting block. And that was big for Trump last during the last election. So, you know, I look at it kind of as a more sinister type of, of, of way that people would in a sense that it's just another one of those things that's going to help the narrative that President Trump legitimately lost in 2020. So I kind of have a dark outlook at those things. Um, I don't know if that even made sense or not. No, it, it absolutely does. You know, I tend to uh, hold to it to a similar opinion that the the economy is going to be, I think, the nail in the coffin for him, what happens between now and the 2020 election. But even regardless of that, uh, and this is by no means an anti-Trump message or anything like that, just looking right. at the demographics, looking at uh, the fact that, you know, even though I'm a fan of the Electoral College versus the popular vote, he did lose the popular vote to Hillary Clinton. It wasn't, you know, a, a landslide by any means. Um, well, I mean, yeah, assuming that the votes are counted and they're all right. well, counted yeah, legitimately. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, well, here's the thing, though. This is important what you're saying, right? Because, you know, I'm pretty far out on the limb saying that I think that it's by design that he's supposed to lose. I personally don't think people are elected. I think they're selected and I think that votes aren't counted. But that's not the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is you were talking about it depends how the economy is. And I just like to say to think about this, right? You know, traditionally speaking, people define a recession as two quarters, two consecutive quarters of negative growth. It doesn't have to be defined like that, but it could be like that. But what are we talking about? We're talking about six months, right? Six months of pain. The elections are, you know, what, a month and a half away? I mean, a year and a, a year and a half away is when the elections are. So we need to have six months of economic pain and then that pain needs to really start sinking in. So my point is, if it depends on what the economy is, right, how the economy is doing, if I'm correct, and President Trump is not going to win re-election, then the economy is going to turn down, it's going to turn down hard, and it's going to turn down faster. It's going to turn down sooner than later. And things that I'm talking about are a bond market crisis. I'm talking about the stock market continuing to decline. I'm talking about the dollar losing value and gas prices moving higher. Um, all of the job losses mounting, store closures mounting, you know, all of the things that come with a recession, this is going to have to start in the next couple months now. So that maximum pain is going to be felt in America as we're leading up into the 2020 election. You know, sounds so, a bit sounds a bit like uh, something we experienced ten or eleven years ago. Yeah, yeah, and uh, um, you know, I like I said, I have a more sinister outlook on it. You know, I look at it as you know, the left got you know sold a bag of goods. You know, in two thousand eight, I think the right's getting sold a bag of goods in two thousand and sixteen. So you know, it just depends, and and you know. Trump's got a lot of money. He's an older guy. You know, if you look at presidents when they go in and when they come out, they look pretty raggedy by the time they leave office. And, you know, you think he'd like to enjoy his later years in life here. So I just don't see it happening in 2020, which means I also see the economic downturn coming sooner than later. And uh, with a sinister view that it's timed to the election. Now, you brought up something there talking about the dollar and, and inflation and, and the role that will play. Um, I was wondering if you could expand on that. I know you wanted to talk some about uh, what you're seeing right now in terms of inflation versus you know what the uh, government or the mainstream media is reporting. Right. And actually, let me I want to pull up the exact quote so I don't misspeak it. Uh, but just uh, hold on a sec. OK. OK. So on April 4th, right, which was yesterday, President Trump tweeted out, OK, despite the unnecessary and destructive actions taken by the Fed. OK, that's not the important point. Uh, here are the important points. The economy is looking very strong. 
right? Uh, the China and USMCA deals are moving along nicely. There is little or no inflation, right? All this is to get the, you know, and then it goes on to say, and, optim and USA optimism is very high. So that's the direct tweet. Now, my point is just this year alone, just when, within the past three months, right? I've seen, now, I don't use public transportation, right? I've used public transportation before many of my adult years, actually, and then not just the United States, but also in Mexico for a couple of years. So I've used the bus system. I've used public transportation before, right? I'm, I'm getting word that public transportation, the bus service monthly pass is going from $50 to $60, right? That, that's a big jump if there's little to no inflation. Um, my wife, right, at her work got a letter um, talking about their insurance premium on a monthly basis is going up as well, $10 a month. Then we got a letter just this week from our cable company saying that beginning in May, our cable bill is going up $10 a month. Now we pay $108, that's a little bit more, so it's not quite 10%, but you know we pay more than most people because we have faster speeds and unlimited download, right? So my point is that there are examples of things we pay for every single month that are just beginning to literally skyrocket in price, right? When you're talking about 10% jumps, 20% jumps, you know, these aren't, these aren't small potatoes. Um, so I think that inflation is, and what it, what it's doing is it's a death by a thousand cuts, right? Because, you know, if you got to pay 10 more dollars for your cable bill, for your internet, you know, okay, so you got to do that. But now you got to also pay $10 more for your health insurance every month. And I also got to pay $10 more for your bus ticket. Now you're paying $10 more for your meat. Now you're paying $10 more for, um, you know, X number of things, right? And over time, it just gets to the point where I think the American consumer, right, is at such a precarious state that even the slightest increases in price at the street level are, are just not able to be absorbed anymore, Right. So, so, you know, and, and this is when the dollar is strong and when the dollar index has stayed between 95 and 97 for the better part of a year. Um, and, and, and I'd like to add this before I forget it, but I just want to talk about the speed with which things can turn. Um, you know, we saw we saw the cryptos turn in 2017. We saw the speed with which that could happen. But I'm not sure if people understood the speed with which oil prices collapsed in 2014. And I remember it distinctly because I was living in Texas at the time and I was driving a lot at the time. And I remember in June of 2014 paying around three dollars and fifty cents a gallon for for a gallon of gasoline. And in December over Christmas, my family came out to visit us and we were joking saying, I wonder if we're going to see 99 cent gasoline before Christmas. Or I can't remember if it was before Christmas or before New Year's, but it was over Christmas break. And the bottom line is that in six months from June until December, the street level price of gasoline went from $3.50 to 99 cents. Okay. Now it can work that way in reverse too. Right. And it can go just as fast. So I'm already seeing signs that street level inflation is well above 10 percent. And this is when the dollar is strong. Right. So we have a huge wave of inflation coming. On top of that, you have a Federal Reserve talking about, you know, it's their objective to get at least 2 percent inflation. Right. So they're saying they're going to devalue our dollar by 2 percent per year, which is their intent, which I'm saying it's even faster than that. And it's even more than that. So not only are they doing that, but at the same time, prices on things are going to be going up. So a devalued dollar buys less. So this wave of inflation is coming. And my point here is that silver, I think, is going to be one of the best things to protect against that, because of all the things in the entire world that are going up in price. It seems like silver is the only thing in the world that goes down in price, but it's unnatural and it can't stay like that for long.
Um, so yeah, so I see a lot of inflation coming from my own direct personal experiences, from just looking at the markets and living through the moves as they play out over the course of the months. And, you know, if inflation does pick up, like I think it will, then there's going to be a lot of pain by the end of this year and coming in the next year. Yeah. Now, if, if I can add to that, we've seen a pivot from the Fed just within the last six months. And it has coincided with a lot of pressure from Donald Trump, you know, the very guy that, that we're talking about here with this tweet. Now, we could argue, is it political or not? I would say that there's maybe more pressure from the stock market and maybe even the overall economy and the financial system than just the president. But, you know, it again, it's coinciding with with. This, you know, Trump Trump started, I think, his attacks on the Fed probably back in the summer. And, and by the end of the year, they were uh, 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 basically pivoting, you know, from, from Christmas Eve onwards. Now, mm-hmm. the reason I'm bringing this up is, is you know, for, for the people listening, we're recording this uh, interview Friday morning, uh, April 5th. And I've just seen this now. So Trump was talking to, to some reporters today. And, and he says, quote, I personally think the Fed should drop rates. I really I think they really slowed us down. There's no inflation. Again, talking about inflation here. Oh, jeez. In terms of quantitative tightening, it should really be quantitative easing. You would see a rocket ship. Despite that, we're doing very well. And so now you're seeing, you know, beyond what Trump was saying, stop with the rate cuts, stop with the 50 Bs a month, you know, $50 billion of, of, of quantitative tightening. Um, just today, you know, this is from Zero Hedge. He's uh, he's saying he, just print the money. That's what he he's wants saying. QE. Yeah. yeah. And, and you can't blame the guy. I mean, if, if he wants to win 2020, he needs some serious, uh, uh, I guess, reflation. I guess, you know, uh, the the. Um, yes. And this is what and this is why the end goal is. This is why the end game will be hyperinflation. Right. Because look at that Fed pivot. Right. See, here's the problem why I don't like just the stock market, because only 50 percent of Americans even own any stocks, right? So so you're not even talking about everybody, you're only talking about half the country. But, right, if it took, you know, almost a 20% correction in the stock market, not quite there, I mean, it depends what index you're looking at, what day and hour you were looking at it. But if you're talking about 20% correction, and then the Fed completely pivoted, right? Um, well, that's not even a crash, right? That's not even a bear market if you're traditionally defining it as a 20% drop. So my point is that, you know, if only half of Americans are in stocks and if only a 20% drop caused the Fed to pivot, what's going to happen when the job losses begin? What's going to happen when the store closures pick up? What's going to happen when the dollar starts losing its strength and prices start going up on everything, right? There is going to be pleas for the government to come in and step in and do something. But the key thing is that there has to be a crisis first. I mean, how are you just going to, you know, because it's debt-based currency. That's the problem, right? We have a debt-based fiat system, which requires ever-increasing debt loads, you know? So, so it's print or die, basically. And, you know, unless, you know, if you're going to put on the turbochargers, well, what is the crisis, right? If he just said, you know, the economy is looking very strong in that tweet yesterday. If he said we have the best economy ever, why do you need to go back to quantitative easing, right? You don't. Um, so, so there are some very dark storm clouds forming. And it has to do with the fact that the Fed pivoted and stepped in on the markets the next time it's going to be the government pivoting and stepping in. And that's going to be because there's going to be real pain on Main Street. Right. And and when it comes to the government stepping in in some sort of massive spending program, I I don't see them, them able to do that 
just like back in 2008. I don't see them being able to do that uh, without Fed participation. You need that monetization of debt. You, you uh, Right, of you, course. Their yeah. deficits are already way too high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the Fed's balance sheet will blow up. Yeah, I mean, however you want to do it, that's correct, right? I mean, whether it's the Fed buying bonds or just printing, however the QE is going to look like the next time around, that's correct. It's just debt monetization and the Fed's going along for the ride. Yes. Um, but, you know, the Fed, they're interested in the financial markets, right? They're not interested in in, in Main Street, um, where the government is interested in both, if that made sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So what I guess, you know, to, to maybe finish up with this when it comes to the next round of, of federal government and Federal Reserve intervention, uh, what do you see on the table? Last time we had stimulus program, we had bailouts, we had QE, we had interest rate cuts, probably a couple other things I'm forgetting, uh, uh, you know, the nationalization more or less of, 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 of some corporations. What do you see this time around? Well, that's assuming that you can that, that's assuming you can fix the patient, right? I think the patient is already brain dead and just being held on life support. So I don't think there's any fix, right? I think I think the United States is the Titanic and there's not really any fix. There's only a rebuild. Um, I see the government and the Fed trying to do something, but I see more of just a painful, slow grinding collapse where every last crumb is fought over. If they just start printing and spending I mean, sure, but those things take years before they fully kick in and to have an effect. And I don't think that they have enough time because I think the speed of which this thing unravels is going to be a lot faster and a lot more devastating. And I don't think they're going to be able to pick up the pieces this time around like they did in 2008. Yeah. And, you know, I guess the view I hold on and it's when it comes to to government or certainly central bank intervention there's there's kind of the the law of diminishing returns, and I think we've seen that already in 2019. You had uh, China with their massive injection of credit into their economy, with not a whole lot of response. Not the response in terms of economic growth in China that we've seen in the past. The law of diminishing returns, and and uh, same thing goes for for the uh, European Central Bank. Just a matter of months after they they stopped their QE program, they announced a, a new round of of basically uh, easier monetary policy easing policies. With very little uh, uh, response to the upside by the markets, I think the markets might yeah. have even dropped initially. And so, you know, the Fed maybe has the most room to move, but it's it's still much much less than what they had uh, leading into the financial crisis. We're talking about half in terms of, of interest rate cuts that they can they can handle. Yeah, um, and people not are really... already tapped out. What good is an interest rate cut if people are already tapped out anyway? If corporations are already tapped out anyway. You know, um, I don't think cutting interest rates is enough. And, you know, you're right. There has to be, you know, if the Fed's balance sheet is, I don't know exactly where it is. Let's just say 4.2 trillion because I don't know the exact number off the top of my head. But if their balance sheet is 4.2 trillion right now, yeah, 10 trillion is coming. 20 trillion is coming because that's what happens with debt-based currency. It relies on exponential growth. And we're at that curve right now. You know, we're at that curve where it's about to go straight up. The only reason that it hasn't is because of the world reserve currency status. Um, but, but yes, you know, to be able to stimulate it the next time around, you've got to throw a heck of a lot of money at it. Way yeah. more than in 2008. Yeah, I mean, I think when, when the Fed in particular, because they have the most room to maneuver, not a whole lot, but, but when they do announce rate cuts or announce their next round of QE. You know, I wouldn't be surprised to see it bounce, but when, and it will happen, I think, when the Fed announces their next increase in QE or the government you know, announces their next round of spending, 
and the markets don't move on that and people say this is a bad thing not a good thing and that's game over that's yeah. that's game over for central banks that's game over for for the current system because it it can't be saved at that point that's that's when the doctor comes into the room and says well let's try uh you know cpr one more time and yeah. and nobody's there to help him he's he's just doing it by himself yeah exactly that, that yeah i agree with that completely that's right well, is there anything else you wanted to uh, add to this interview? Um, no, I think that's all. Uh, you know, my point was that, you know, everybody wants to know when and why everything is taking so long. And, you know, the bottom line is that, you know, long periods pass where not a lot happens or it seems like, you know, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. But once things start moving, I think the speed at which things are going to move is going to be shocking. And, you know, as far as with gold and silver, you're either positioned before that happens or you're not. And, you know, just the simple fact is that 99% are not going to be positioned for what's coming. 99% don't even know what is coming. Right. And and uh, the speed at which it's going to come is going to blindside a lot of people. Yeah, I, I have to. So agree. unfortunately, my view is not half full. It's half empty. And, you know, I'm hoping to get a new glass and pour some other drink into it because the glass we have is not working. It's cracked. It's leaking. And the water isn't even suitable for drinking anyway. Well, Paul, it's it's really been a good interview. And, and I look forward to having you on and again in the future. I think we could. Talk for a couple more hours about all this, but but once again, thank you for joining me today. Great, Matt. Appreciate it, and talk to you again next time. Sounds good. Have a great day. Thanks.